This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Dawn Laval-Norman. Dawn is Senior Research Fellow at the Australian Catholic University and she joined me to talk about the presence and role of women in ancient philosophical dialogues and how this all relates back to her project, the Diatima Prize. The prize seeks to address the question, why is philosophy so male-dominated? It will redress the gender imbalance through the creation of new plays which will be inspired by the mediums of drama and philosophical dialogue. Dawn tells us exactly who the priestess and philosopher Diotima was. She also tells us about some other prominent women of ancient philosophy and literature. I'm really excited to speak with my next guest who I have been following her work and her writing. She's been writing some great articles for the conversation and she's now got a phenomenal project that's underway that's happening here in Melbourne. It's really exciting and it's called the Diatima Prize and it does form part of her research on philosophical dialogues and the role of women in those dialogues. Where were they? What role did they actually play? And how do philosophical dialogues actually relate to theatre in the ancient world? The person I'm speaking with is Dr. Dawn Laval-Norman. She's a senior research fellow at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. And Dawn is an expert on philosophical dialogues in the ancient world. We're going to talk about some big questions. And one of those really big questions, which comes up not just about the ancient world, but philosophy in general, which is why is philosophy so male dominated? It's certainly a question I had when I was studying philosophy at uni. And it did certainly play out even in our tutorials when Mm. it would be so male focused and a lot of the men would interject a lot and argue and kind of use it as a way to, I don't know, have an intellectual slugfest with each other. And I found a lot of the women would sit back and go, oh, I don't really want to get into this in the way that it's playing out. So it can be a lot of times a bit alienating for women when they engage in philosophy. So I very much welcome onto the show, Dr. Dawn Laval-Norman. Hi there, Dawn, and thank you very much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's really great that you are focusing on women in the ancient world, women philosophers and thinkers, and much broader than that as well. And it's certainly, as I said, philosophy has been something that has been a bit off-putting to women and also minority groups in the way that it historically has favoured male voices and the way of, I guess, arguing about yeah. philosophical context in a very male way, ego-driven way in some regards. Mm-hmm. Not always, but sometimes mm-hmm. it can seem that way. Could you talk to us about, just at the very foundations, what drew you into ancient philosophy and philosophical Mm -hmm. dialogues and what exactly they are? Yep. So I have an interest in literary studies more before I had an interest in philosophy. So I'm interested in the way that philosophy is written. So the style that philosophy is written in and most philosophy is written in the form of treatises. So you have a proposition and then you'll have an argument for that proposition and it builds a logical argument. But there's another popular way in the ancient world of writing philosophy, which was a philosophical dialogue. And this is something that was seen to be invented in the ancient world in response to this very charismatic teacher named Socrates. A whole bunch of his students started writing philosophy in a new way, in a way that combined philosophy, so this logical, this logical train of arguments, 
with a lot of the techniques taken over from ancient drama. So there was a dialogue between characters in a specific setting, just like a drama would be, and they would have positions based on their character. And sometimes there would be no conclusion, or sometimes someone would come in from the outside and disrupt the conversation. So it had all these dramatic characteristics. And the most famous writer of these philosophical dialogues, not the only one, but the most famous is Plato. And Plato has an interesting relationship with theater. We're told by his ancient biographers that he used to write plays himself, but he was walking one day with play in hand to go enter it into a competition when he met Socrates and was so taken by this other way of living, this other way of speaking, that he burned his play and decided to follow Socrates instead. But that story shows us kind of that energy, that dramatic energy that Plato as a writer was able to weave into how he did philosophy. And it is a really engaging thing to read when you get into it. You know, you kind of feel like you're there, a bit of a fly on the wall, watching people yeah. converse on a street, having it out about a particular issue. Some people may have read a dialogue before or maybe they've heard of Plato's Republic. There are many different types of philosophical issues that get explored in dialogues. What are some of those issues that you are most interested in that have been explored, especially by Plato and Socrates through Plato? Usually each of the dialogues has a particular theme. So in the Republic, which you mentioned, the theme, the question is, what is justice? But the one that one of the ones I study the most because it has the most interesting relationship to women is Plato's Symposium. And Plato's Symposium asks the question, what is love? And very interestingly, lots of other symposia were written after Plato, also reflecting on what is love and how it changed kind of through time, especially into the Christian era. So my very first book I wrote was about a symposium that was written 600 years after Plato's Symposium, which is a Christian symposium where they're actually asking the question, what is what is chastity instead of what is erotic, what is erotic love? So you can see how you can turn, turn the question on its head in a different context. And actually in that symposium, all the characters are women who are speaking to each other. So it's quite yeah. interesting the change in dynamics over time and how different voices are allowed to speak on different topics. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I know that you have said in your work and you've explored in your work, a whole range of women who to varying degrees have been involved in dialogues and mm -hmm. it it to you has brought up I guess a big disparity between the presence of women in theatre, ancient theatre, and the presence of women in ancient philosophy and dialogues. Could mm -hmm. you talk to us about what you observe, you know, the differences between women's role and function in a play, a dramatic play from ancient times versus their role and, and presence in a dialogue? Yeah. One intriguing thing is that you should sort of think, I, I like to think of it in terms of maybe three different ways of doing drama in the ancient world. There's ancient tragedy, Greek tragedy, there's Greek comedy, and there's philosophical dialogues. And Greek tragedy is the one we're really familiar with from going mm -hmm. and seeing a lot of plays performed. And Greek tragedy is full of really important verb, um, verbal women, but it's always set in the, in the historical past. These are not women who are walking around the, your street you're not worried that your wife is going to become Medea, hopefully, or <laughs> that your daughter is going to be Antigone. Or you, you might, but it's through through the distance of, of, of a historical distance and drama. So you, you watch these verbal women on stage. You may feel a bit of horror. You may feel a bit of admiration, but it's a, it's a bit mediated. When you get into um, philosophical dialogues, these are contemporary people 
who everyone actually knows all the, like Plato himself mentions himself in the dialogue, uh, different dialogues mention the same characters. So these are people that actually are historical characters in, in ancient Athens at the time that they're being written. And so there becomes a different, a different danger if you present women on the street corner talking in a real timeline that is your present timeline because women in ancient and classical Athens were very secluded, respectable women were. If you were, there are certain classes of women that had a lot more social presence, but if you're a respectable woman, you were not out on the streets so much. So I love thinking about the problem of Plato and women in terms of a couple of different dialogues. So he has this dialogue that talks about Socrates' deathbed conversations. It's called the Phaedo, and it's a beautiful dialogue where Socrates is trying to tell all of his disciples, don't worry, I'm going to die, but death is not the end. You know, you, he, it's a dialogue where he's trying to turn their, their distress and their sorrow into acceptance. And it's a very tragic death, isn't it? Because he's going yeah. to take a vial of poison. Exactly. So it's, and it's there prepared for him. And at some point it, it comes into the dialogue and he holds it and he drinks it. Like he drinks it in the dialogue mm. and then, and then he dies in the dialogue. So it's this amazing dramatic moment, but people focus a lot on his death at the end, but there's a really interesting part in the beginning, very beginning of that dialogue where the person who's telling us the story comes to the prison and it's early dawn and he finds that Socrates is not alone. He is there with his wife, Xanthippe, and one of their little children. And we don't actually hear much about Socrates' family, but he did have a family. And importantly, he maybe even had two wives at the same time, <laughs> which was bri briefly permitted uh, because of the a decline in population due to war. So we come in, Xanthippe is there. She's holding their son and she breaks out weeping. And she says the one line that Plato has any woman say on stage in a dialogue. And she says, oh, this is so terrible. This is your last day to spend with your friends. And Socrates says, get someone to take the woman away. Oh, <laughs> And someone leads her off stage. And then they can get down to it, get down to business and get down to philosophizing. So there's this, she has this overly emotive response that gets mm -hmm. in the way of actually being able to talk about issues. And then later he says the whip, the men who are with him are about to start crying. And he says, didn't I already send the women away? Do I have to send you away too? Oh, so God. he can use, use the women as a shaming device, you know, for wow. the men being like, don't be so, don't become like them. So there's this, you can see kind of this dramatic exclusion mm. of that overly emotional, overly tied to family, unable to abstract to think about general ideas because they're so concerned with practical daily, daily life. So there's this kind of this, tension dramatized in, in, in gendered terms. And then there's another dialogue I can talk about as well, which is really interesting to my project because it's where I get the name Diatima. So this kind of mysterious person I, I talk about in the Diatima prize and Diatima is a character that has an interesting role to play in Plato's symposium, but she's not there in the drama of the party. She's not invited to the party but Socrates says, ah, oh, you know, earlier I was having this conversation with this really wise woman named Diatima. Let me tell you what we talked about back then. But no women are allowed to be at this party where they're having this conversation. And in fact, in the very beginning, they had had a, an entertainer there, a flute player, and they decide to send her away. So they don't have any women there at all. And they say, let that woman go play to the women. Let the flute player play to the women who are inside. So we have this idea that inside in some other room, all the women are gathered in a different uh -huh. gender segregated area, having their own party. <laughs> but we don't get to see that. That's not part of what's going to be talked about in a philosophical dialogue. Wow. So yeah, women are very 
clearly excluded. They're domesticated as these yeah. kind of mothers and partners, but not intellectual heavies. Diatima, you say she's a priestess. Could you tell us about what we know about Diatima, this woman who appears secondhand through Socrates in this dialogue in the symposium? Like, what do we know for sure about Diatima, if at all? <laughs> when you ask, what do you know for sure about something from the ancient world? It's going to be quite little. <laughs> but, yeah. um, and so maybe could you also tell us why we don't know? You know, because I know a lot yeah. of books were, you know, burned or they lost it. You know, why don't we know? We do know a bit about women in the ancient world and everybody, interestingly, there's always these hints that there were always women philosophers in all the different fields of philosophy, but we just don't get much detail about them. So we shouldn't be radically surprised that there are female philosophers, but they're just usually um, referenced in a very minor way or for some other reason. And so they're hard to get at and hard to see. Now, Diotima, I think what's interesting about her as a character is when Socrates brings her up in conversation the rest of the people there don't know who she is. So she ha- he has to introduce her. There's one other important woman he talks about named Aspasia in a different dialogue named the Menexenus. And there he says, oh, you all know Aspasia because she is actually quite famous. She was the mistress of the first man in Greece. Everyone knew who she was. Diotima, nobody knows who she was, in, even in the drama of the dialogue. So we're even less able to kind of access her as an independent historical person. She was a priestess from a town called Mantinea. And what Socrates tells us about her is that through her intercession with the gods, she delayed the plague coming to Athens. So she had sort of an important kind of political role as a priestess in relationship to the gods and the and the and the city. That's what we know about her. <laughs> there are some that's like it's not very much. Uh, and then we're, we're, we know that Socrates calls her teacher and then relates this really long conversation that he says that they had. And the fact that a woman is a teacher or a mentor of Socrates, that seems quite significant given how much Socrates was revered. Absolutely. Yeah, Socrates himself, if, I always think that Plato is quite anti-woman, but I don't think Socrates was <laughs> the person that's the star of these dialogues. But Socrates didn't write anything himself. But it's, always, I, it's interesting that Socrates a couple different times also mentions his mother. So we do know that, you know, he he had a mother whom he names and says that she was a, a, a midwife. And so he has, you know, and he has a wife, <laughs> at least one. So, yeah, but, but a woman as a teacher is quite unusual. Often women, when they were part of a philosophical school, they were their students. So it was saying, look, our philosophy is so great. It's even important to women. It wasn't that they yeah. could then turn around and teach men. So it is quite unusual to, to say, here's a female teaching a male. That was very unusual. If women were teachers, they'd often teach other women. So it, it's it's unexpected. And one of the reasons it seems like Socrates is comfortable doing that here is because of the topic. So the topic is about erotic love. And erotic love is one of those areas where women would be seen as experts. For sure. And I can't remember where I read it, but I was reading about Diotima and maybe it was on your Instagram. And there are reports at least that the teaching style or method of Diotima was preferred. You know, that people were like, wow, the way that she teaches us mm-hmm. is more interesting or more engaging. Mm-hmm. You know, so clearly she wasn't just a teacher, but quite a compelling one that we we get to meet indirectly through Socrates. What do what, we know about that? 
what's wonderful about Socrates is depiction of Diotima is that Diotima is, is like a, is like a teacher like Socrates, but even more so. So Socrates is famous for being, for asking his students questions and making his students uncomfortable and making his students kind of do a lot of the work. And Diotima does exactly the same thing. She teases Socrates. She asks him questions. She, she like out Socrates is Socrates. She's like very Socratic in how she teaches. And so you could imagine Socrates, you know, learning his method from her if she was a historical woman, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I'm not so convinced she was, but lots of people think she was. But at least you see her being a Socrates-like character, which is intriguing. Could you take us through what happens in the dialogue, especially what Socrates mm. says Diotima teaches him about erotic love? I know that's a mm-hmm. kind of big question, but the piece may not be super accessible to some <laughs> people, you know, yeah. today. And I did, I've read through a bit of it, the English translation. And even I, who have some background, I was still questioning what some of the concepts meant, you know, when it comes yeah. to appreciating beauty, for example, what that yeah. meant at the time versus what it means today. So could you take us through what Diotima has essentially taught Socrates and, and how Socrates reports on erotic love, like what he learned from her? Yeah. So he reports his conversation with Diotima and he says, um, he assumes that love is good and is somehow connected to the gods. And Diotima says, no, it's not good. And Socrates says, what, is it bad? And Diotima says, what, do you think there's only good and bad? Don't you know there's something in between, something in between good and bad, which is where desire sits it's that lack. We don't have what's good, but we want it. And so we seek, we seek things and we long for things. And that's where, where love fits. He's the son of poverty and abundance. So he kind of has this dual, dual nature. And then after this kind of mythological story of who the God Eros is and how he has this, this dual nature of lack and fullness, then she leads Socrates through what's called the ladder of love. That's how it's been kind of made part of the philosophical tradition. And this is an argument for how human people work and how they're attracted to things and how they slowly like can purify those attractions from the particular to the general in order to start loving things that are better and better in Socrates' view. So for instance, he says that the lowest kind of love is the love we have for another individual. I mean, we see someone who's beautiful in his world, it would be, you see a beautiful boy (laughs) and you fall in love with that beautiful boy and you love their body. But then you have another step and you may start loving their mind or what they think or who they are. And then from that, from loving the particular person, you can start loving more and more general things. Like you can love good laws (laughs) is his example, you know, or something beautiful. You could think of like a structure that you like or, or something more abstract. And finally, like you, 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 your soul gets more and more accustomed to, to loving beauty wherever you see it, not just in the particular, but in kind of the, the more general form of beauty until finally his idea would be you, uh, or through Diotima's voice, you would, you would love beauty itself and you would want to always be looking at beauty itself, kind of abstracted from the particular up into the, up into the general. And that's the life of a philosopher is the, is the life of trying to look at beauty and give birth to something that's inside of us that needs, needs beauty to be brought forth. So you could think of poetry as one of these things along the ladder 
and then kind of the good life or something like that might be the highest form. Yeah, because I think Diotima uses pregnancy as a way of explaining this. Could you tell us how she uses that, you know, this idea yes. that's very tied to women and, and their body? Yes, this is something I've thought a lot about. I'm really intrigued. I think it's one of the reasons why Socrates decides to have a woman speak because he wants to use this metaphor of pregnancy. So she says that all of us are pregnant by nature, which means we have this thing inside of us that's longing to come out. And we're looking, we're looking for the right context that will bring out this baby that's inside of us. And that context is beauty. So we kind of like are are staggering around looking for beautiful things in which to give birth is what she would say. But it's quite complicated because I don't know how much to get into this, but as I mentioned earlier, we're in a very like homoerotic context as well in the ancient world. So pederasty was kind of the way that philosophy was done. (laughs) This is all Mm. a bit foreign to us, but um, there's also this idea of how can pederastic love also be kind of productive? How can it also be a form of giving birth? And the idea is that it gives birth to virtue. So even though you're not having physical children like you would, it's a metaphorical pregnancy. It's leading people to a better life. And that's sort of this giving birth to virtue. So you could think of it as appropriating women's power, women's like physical power to give birth into an all-male realm of male-male love where they're giving birth to things that are not children physical children. Mm. Or you could think of it as sort of glorifying a woman's ability to procreate and thinking that this is a, is a wonderful type for all types of procreation that we do, all types of of creation that we uh, that we are in part of. Yeah, there is this question that comes up even when it comes to analyzing artworks and mm. the male sometimes it's seen as anxiety of not being able to create mm-hmm. life. Like yes, yes, they they contribute semen, but they don't have yep. that bodily ability to actually fully create a human Mm -hmm. and how men grapple with that inability, that lack, which women have a a dominance, like an exclusive rollover. And often that's not seen as a positive for women because they're then shunned into these very narrow roles. But in another way, I guess it might be seen as something of a benefit that women Mm -hmm. have and that men don't. And in this case, what you're, I guess, saying is that men are trying to find something else, some other equivalent where where they're like, look what we can do. Yeah. And I I think you see that in in Socrates also, in the way Plato tells it, Socrates sending away not only his wife, but his child. Mm. And instead wanting to have his last moments with his intellectual children, with those men whom he's taught, you know, to think not just about making money and about being important politically, but tried to teach them to, to pursue virtue and knowledge. And so he's, he, those are, that's his family in a sense, the people he really wants to be, sur- he wants to be surrounded by at his death rather than his, his biological family. It's really interesting. I know that you wrote a piece in the conversation about wise women, six ancient female philosophers you should know about a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, also for yeah. International Women's Day, yes. uh, which is tomorrow. And it mentions six different people, some of which you've also mentioned, like Aspasia. But these are, I guess, some of the other women who do feature in also small ways, in different kinds of ways. And I assume that they'll also form part of a discussion when the Diatima Prize workshop kicks off. Yes, exactly. So most of the women that I talk about in that article, the ones I'm most interested in, are those who are characters in philosophical dialogues in those kind of dramatic ways. I'm interested not only when ancient biographers 
tell about women being philosophers, but when they show them speaking philosophically and what does it mean for a woman to speak philosophically and who is she allowed to speak philosophically with and what does she get to say? It's those particular examples. So, and another person in that list is Macrina, who's a very interesting person that is in a dialogue that's based on Plato's Phaedo where he's dying, but instead of Socrates dying, it's the woman who's dying, Macrina, and she teaches her brother how to face death well as the dying person, just like Socrates does. So you get a really interesting kind of gender switching there as well, where the it's um, instead of sending the women away, the women are, are in the center of that discussion about how to die well. It's an interesting topic that a woman has taken as part of her dialogue. And I think, what was it called? On the Soul and Resurrection? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, Um, And there are other women there, of course, some who are perhaps more quote-unquote famous because they might have been in films like Hypatia of Alexandria. You know, she's quite well-known as well, isn't she? Yes, she is. Yeah. 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 And I'm very interested in Hypatia. Hypatia was definitely a historical person, and so she's interesting. And we know from her from multiple sources. One of our problems with ancient female philosophers is we often only know about them from one source, which doesn't really allow us to create an in-depth portrait of who they are. But Hypatia, we know from letters from her student to her. We know about ancient historians who were contemporaneous with her, talks about her. And so we kind of, she's very interesting as a teacher, but she's also much later. You know, she's she's early fifth mm. century CE. So she's, she's like kind of the latest of all of these people, but she becomes the most important because she dies a really gruesome death and she sort of becomes a symbol for wisdom or for knowledge that's kind of destroyed by superstition. So she kind of is like this this bright light that's held up and becomes a lot more than who she was. But she doesn't um, feature in a dialogue and none of her writings survive. So we do we have difficulty accessing her voice and her ideas, but she definitely existed and, and definitely wrote philosophical works. Mm-hmm. So there's Hypatia and then not in a dialogue, but someone who I guess is probably one of the most well-known women writers is Sappho. Uh, mm-hmm. from the island of Lesbos. And obviously she has inspired so many different people yes. uh, in contemporary times and across history. Is there a role also for women like that who don't necessarily fit into the dialogues um, criteria but are also, you know, well-known women who influenced the ancient world in some way? Yeah, I think those people are – those Sappho is so important because she is one of the very few – ancient female writers whose writings survive in part. They don't mm. survive in whole at all. You know, we have a very small selection of what she wrote, but she she kind of gives us access to, and it's very tempting because she kind of, she creates this uh, in, some of her, in some of her poems, she creates this all female setting where she's teaching a lot of young women who uh, she laments when they have to leave to get married. And she speaks about it in a very erotic way. So she creates this sort of female space, which is super interesting in ancient poetry. She wasn't the only ancient female poet whose poetry survives in part. There's another important one named Gnosis, who is like another, she's like writes in the tradition of Sappho. So there's other female poets and they are clearly educated female writers, uh, kind of, but in a, in a liter- more literary and less kind of philosophical uh, strain. Well, let's talk about the details of the Diatima Prize because this is part of a DECRA project and for anyone in the academic world, if you get a DECRA, you are pretty special uh, <laughs> there aren't that many around. So could you tell us about your DECRA project and how the Diatima Prize fits into it? 
Yes. So my Decker project is on the female voice in ancient philosophical dialogues. So what we've been is what we've been talking about this last half hour. And because I was so, I'm so interested in dialogue, I'm so, I'm really interested in kind of the dramatized versions of philosophy that I thought a wonderful way to reflect upon these issues and to really use my research to inspire uh, modern practice is to run a theater prize. So it's called the Diatima Prize, and you can check out the website, thediatimaprize.com. And it's about people are going to write one-act plays after a workshop that I'm going to do at the end of the month, talking about these different issues of women's voices, ancient philosophical dialogues, settings of philosophy, why we still are have gendered views about philosophy and wisdom. And then we have an expert judging panel, who's not myself, <laughs> and they're going to choose three of the plays that are submitted, and there'll be prize money for those three winners. And then the plays will be performed in 2024 at yeah. a conference that we're going to be running. So that will be open to the public as well. So everyone's welcome to come to that when that's performed in 2024. Oh, well, that sounds really exciting. Um, yeah. I'm speaking with Dawn Laval Norman, and I know that this has been quite a democratizing project in the fact that anyone could have applied to yes. participate in the workshop in March. I believe that you've had such an amazing response that now places are all filled. Yes, unfortunately. I'm sorry if you heard this and got inspired. <laughs> but yes, we closed registration recently. So we have we have about 80, a little more than 80 people have signed up so far. So there should be a good, good participation. Yeah, it's a very exciting project because it's enabling anyone really to participate and to come up with a kind of creative response to this question about why is philosophy so male-dominated and, you know, women's role in philosophical dialogues. I can't wait to hear about what people come up with. Like Me whether, too. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, too. is, is Diatima going to appear and yeah. where, might Socrates also appear? Who knows how people could recreate drama and, mm -hmm. and, a, and a dialogue. Yeah. What do you hope will come out of this and whether this kind of work and these projects might influence your research? Yeah, I hope that these plays can then be read and performed and, and really influence the conversation about, about modern issues of why, as you started out the conversation, why do we enter a philosophy classroom and don't want to speak so often? Or why, mm. you know, why is there a shutting down of voices in philosophy more than a, than a welcoming voices into, into these certain settings? So I, I'm hoping that it can, these plays can be used among people who are thinking about what to study at university or just wanting to think about this in, in the world uh, more generally, because I really do feel like the ancient world has insights. What I'm really intrigued to find out is how many of our participants are going to decide to set their plays in a historical period or how many are going to set this set their plays in, in the contemporary period and how those two time periods are going to interact in all the different submissions. So I don't know what people are going to do. It's going to be um, an exciting project. And how it's going to reflect back on my work is that it's really been wonderful working through preparing for this prize to just have front and center the idea of theater practitioners and what, what it means to kind of write philosophy dramatically. What are the limitations of that form? What are the, what are the possibilities of that form? So what kind of what are our, my writers from the ancient world? What kind of restrictions are they working within or what influences them? Because I, I don't do drama fundamentally. I do I do prose work, not, not dramatic work. Mm. And so um, it's really kind of made me more attuned to the importance of drama in the dialogues that I work on. Yeah. Well, 
I'm so excited and I hope we get to follow it up and find out what people have submitted and what eventually wins a prize and is staged. Uh, So, yeah, thank you so much, Dawn, for taking the time to chat with us about these topics, which are utterly fascinating. And, yeah, I really do hope that it is a a very fun workshop in March. I'm sure it will be and, and that it really does stimulate some really exciting discussions. Thank you, Amy. It's really been a pleasure to talk about it. I've just been speaking with Dr. Dawn Laval-Norman. She's a senior research fellow at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. And as Dawn said, you can go to their website, the Diotima Prize. It's spelled D-I-O-T-I-M-A, thediotimaprize.com. And you can also find them on Instagram as well. It's a really fascinating conversation and topic to explore further. And you don't have to be a philosopher to participate. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.